0: Shabbat Shalom friends, it is good to be with you again and as we come together we go back to our studies that we've been doing in the things that we believe and therefore do. This week a friend shared something on Facebook and I thought I would respond to that because it is a consistent issue that we come up against. The question was posed whether Israel is still the chosen nation or whether God had replaced the chosen people and whether the chosen status had been replaced by the church, the body of Messiah. And it pained me. Listen to these words from Psalm 105, verse 8. The si Valley Elavdoa. He has remembered his covenant forever, the words which, which he commanded to a thousand generations. God remembers his covenant, and based on the covenants he has obligated himself to certain promises, to certain obligations. It is God who has obligated himself we cannot do that. He did that. And so he's commanded that word not just temporarily but forever to a thousand generations. And so people who claim that the body of Messiah has replaced the nation of Israel, replacement theology, sometimes called supersessionism, there are different terms for this. Is really a false belief that God has replaced the Jewish people, the people of Israel, that they have lost their divine given status as the chosen people, that they've been replaced by the church, particularly the Gentiles? But does that hold up scripturally? Well, Psalm 112 already declared that that is not the case. But let's look at the beginning of it, because it's part of the covenant, it's part of the agreement. Deuteronomy chapter 7, which is the book of the covenant, Deuteronomy 7 verses 6 to 8. For you are a People set apart to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples of the earth who are on the face of the earth. The Lord has not set his love on you nor chosen you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of all people, but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore, to your forefathers. The Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt." Some translations will say, for you are a holy people, but the word here just means set apart. The nation of Israel was set apart by God. They didn't become saints but they were set apart by God, they were chosen, it states that clearly, as a people, not just as individuals, but as a people, to be God's own peculiar treasure, his own possession, out of all the peoples of the earth. The only one that can change his mind is God. We didn't do the choosing. The church didn't do the choosing. The Jewish people didn't do the choosing. God did the choosing. He therefore is responsible for that. And he chose them not because they were big, mighty, strong, powerful, cleverer. No. He did this because he made a an oath, in this case it says. And the oath relates particularly to the relationship to the covenant that God made with Abraham and Isaac. And with Isaac it's called the oath. And so it is the covenant of Abraham, Isaac, and it is the covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then on top of that says that he redeemed them because they were not only small in number, but they were also weak, because they could not redeem themselves. The book of Deuteronomy, more so than the other books of Moses, emphasizes Israel's election. Deuteronomy 4, verses 37 to 38. Because he loved your fathers, therefore he chose their descendants. In other words, because of the patriarchs, he chose them. And he delivered them. And so he then brings them into the land for an inheritance. Deuteronomy 10, verse 15. Yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them, And He chose their descendants after them. Even you above all the peoples, as it is to this day. God made the agreement with the forefathers, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And with them He has that oath, that covenant. But because of that He continues to set His affection, His love upon their descendants. Even to this day it says... And uh, You might wonder why? What is the purpose in all this? Why would he choose, uh, well, a seemingly a random nation, a small nation, a nation that didn't even exist in Genesis 10? It didn't exist. The purpose and the reason for Israel's election is that they might do certain things. Uh, being chosen, today we see it as a status. But it isn't so much a status, it is a calling to do something. I am the chosen one. We see that very differently. But you've got to look this back in the context of what God declares over and over and over. And consistently he says, these are the things that I want you to do. Now let's look at it specifically in terms of their national identity. Not their individual identity. As individuals, they still need to hear the gospel. They still need to be saved. As a chosen nation, they're chosen by God. But it doesn't mean they're saved. They still need the message that we have today. But Israel was chosen as a nation to broadcast the knowledge of God. Isaiah chapter 43, verses 10 to 12. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am He before me. There was no God formed, and there will be none after me. I even I am the Lord, and there is no Saviour beside me. It is I who declares sorry, it is I who have declared and saved, a and there is no strange God among you. So you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. The passage is clear. The book of Isaiah is primarily written to the Jewish people. They are his witnesses, not those modern people who claim to be Jehovah's Witnesses. They're not Jewish, and they're stealing identity. They are the worst kinds of replacement theology perhaps not the worst, that's an overstatement, but they're certainly involved in replacement, in supersessionism. They have replaced the Jewish people. They have superseded the Jewish people. And that is wrong. Israel was to be the clarus of who God was, not just to themselves, but amongst the nations. The second thing that I want to point out is that they were to bring forth the Messiah. Uh, There are a number of scriptures we could look at, but let me just keep it down in time. Uh, The book of Romans, chapter 9, verses 3 to 5, Paul writes, and I'll come back to the first part, that he was accursed, uh, separated from Messiah for the sake of the Jewish people, if it meant their salvation and the answer is no. And then he says these things belong to them, the Sonship, the glory of the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple services, the promises, uh, whose are the forefathers, those who have the covenants, and from whom is the Messiah according to the flesh. It particularly relates to the Abrahamic covenant uh, which has that promise of the seed And in Galatians 3, Paul points out, the Apostle Paul points out that this is about the Messiah. So the Messiah would come from the Jewish people. Israel was to be the recipient of God's revelation. There are a number of passages, Uh, some of them are fascinating, like Deuteronomy 4 verses 5 to 8, uh, where we see that Moses telling the Jewish people that he received from the Lord now he's giving it to them so that they may keep the law. But listen to these words Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 7. For what great nation is there that has a god so near to it as the Lord our God whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there that has the statutes and judgment as righteous as this whole law? which I'm setting before you today." This was God's divine revelation given on Mount Sinai, initially to all the nation, and then the nation says, "Well, oh, this is too much to bear. And Moses then is the one who intercedes, and the nation uh, hears it via Moses. But it's an amazing concept that God gave this. But it wasn't just for them, that's for sure book of Samuel in the second book of Samuel in chapter 7 verse 19 it is talking about David in particular but it's it's David's uh, a covenant that is being made and it's about the promise to David and within that there is this statement listen carefully then David the king this is verse 18 went in and sat before the Lord and he said who am I O Lord God and what is my house that you have brought me this far and yet this was insignificant in your eyes O Lord God for you have spoken also of the house of your servant concerning the distant future." And this is the Torah Ha'adam. The instructions for mankind. In many versions it'll have something like the custom of man. But he's talking about the distant future that there is a law coming for all of mankind. It's not the Torah of Moses Yes, the word Torah is used, but Torah just means instructions. So these are the instructions for all mankind. They are distinct from that. But this nation is to give the instructions to all mankind. How were they to do that? Well, that's found back in Exodus 19. And in Exodus 19, verse 6, we see that. It's the revelation on Mount Sinai. They stand together and God then declares, Now, if you indeed will obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession. Again, that's that earlier connection that is being made. From amongst all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be my kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A nation set apart. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Did you notice something now? Israel is to be the ministering nation to the world. They are to be the covenant nation that explains and broadcasts the knowledge of the Holy One, the True One, as are 43. They are to be the witnesses, particularly that He is the Savior, the only Savior, And that comes out then in the book of Romans, that Messiah is the only Savior, and so that he would come from the Jewish people. And that they would be the recipients of the blessing of the testimony of the Lord to all mankind, 2 Samuel 7. And they were to be those ministers to all the peoples. You see, the nation of Israel had a priestly tribe, the tribe of Levi, but they only ministered internally. Amongst the tribe of Levi, you had the priest, who ministers, who ministers to them. The high priest intercedes for them. There is a hierarchical structure. Now within the body of Messiah, we don't have that hierarchical structure anymore. We have one Lord, one faith, one Messiah, one high priest, and we all are all to minister underneath Him. Back then, that wasn't the case. The nation of Israel was supposed to minister across the nation. Sadly, Israel rejects that calling. Israel, to some degree, is like the prophet Jonah, the reluctant prophet. We often give Jonah a bad rap, and I, I have to be honest, I I, I like Jonah if I would be Jonah I would be reluctant. He's sent to Nineveh. These are the arch enemies of Israel. Assyria uh, is one of the most brutal regimes. Uh, they come in, they slaughter left, right and center. They kill pregnant women by ripping them open. Uh, they, they are horrible people. They They are the worst of the worst. And so when God calls Jonah, he says, which way is Nineveh? Okay, I'll go that way. It isn't right. He knows that it isn't right. But I get it. I I, I, I get it. And I hope you do too. It is a little bit like us being asked to go into... Syria and minister to the people of Isis. People who are still dedicated and committed to it while we are going. How many of us would have put up our hands and said send me Lord yeah send me. But because Israel follows in the steps of Jonah they become an inward looking nation. No longer a a light to the nations but sadly they lost that light and therefore the the one true light that they need to then rekindle must come from God, must come from Messiah himself who is the light of the world. Sadly Israel too rejected Messiah In the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 3, we see this strongly. And it is a sad thing that the people of Israel did this. Listen to these words. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? This was a question posed in the Roman Gentile, predominantly Gentile church. What is the advantage of the Jew? And Paul responds, great in every respect. First of all, to them were entrusted the oracles of God. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? Just because Israel wasn't faithful, just because Israel rejected Messiah, Matthew 12, does that mean that God is unfaithful? God forbid. That is not so. May it never be. Rather, let God be found true. though every man found to be a liar, as it is written. It is clear that God remained faithful to His Covenant. But when Israel rejected Messiah, they rejected the Messiah as King. Therefore the Kingdom was postponed. The Kingdom wasn't removed, just postponed. When Israel murmured ten times over and over and over and over again in the wilderness with Moses, Did God say, I'm going to remove the promised land from you? Only for that generation. That generation was excluded from coming into the land. That generation. So too here, there is a generation that will not enter into Messiah's kingdom. And that is this generation. That's why in Matthew 12, this generation is that key phrase. The promises are still out there. That doesn't change. One of the things that they received was the Word of God. It clearly said that too. Turn with me to chapter 9. I am telling the truth in Messiah. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have a great sorrow and an unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish myself accursed, separated from Messiah, for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law, the temple services and the promises, Whose are the fathers, and from whom is Messiah, according to the flesh? Who is over all? God bless forever. Amen. What a magnificent statement. Paul felt that great anguish. He's saying, may I be anathema, may I be cursed, accursed, meaning to be separated from God for all eternity, if it meant their salvation, that cannot be, it's not possible and Paul knows that, but he's expressing a desire saying, I wish it was possible that I as an individual would suffer if the entire nation would be saved. I wonder how many of us have prayed that prayer. Lord, I have an anguish in my soul and my spirit for my nation and for your nation, the people of Israel. May I be accursed if it meant their salvation. Paul knows that all Israel will be saved, but it is not then And he knows that it's not all Israel, it is only the remnant, those that truly believe. Sadly, that has always been the case. There's always been a remnant according to grace, and not the whole nation. One day, all Israel, at the very end of this age, they will, because they will cry out to him, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In Romans chapter 9 Paul is saying, I wish I could trade places with my fellow Jews and suffer eternal cursing, eternal damnation, if it meant their salvation. He knows that they must choose individually. They are called collectively and chosen as a people, but they are unsaved. From them, or to them belongs the adoption as sons. Exodus 4, verse 22, Jeremiah 31, verses 9 to 17. Talk about the covenant blessings that they received as sons. Israel's sonship is amazing, it is well worth contemplating. But just because you are a son doesn't mean you're automatically received by God. The unconditional covenants and blessings are still to come and still to be fulfilled. But they have received so little from it. Israel's Sonship has a glorious future to come. It is based on the unconditional covenants and the promises that God has made. And this passage, Romans 9, 10 and 11, continue to say that. It continues to say what the prophet said. God has a plan for the Jewish people. He wants to bless them, but they in turn must respond to the grace that God has given them. If not, they will be broken off. And so based on this passage, we see that he's leaning on Jeremiah 31 verses 31 to 34, the new covenant that would be given to Israel. The new covenant doesn't belong to the church, it belongs to Israel. It is one of the covenants that God has made, an unconditional covenant. And we as the body of Messiah share in that. These privileges that God has given belong to Israel properly and not to the church. God has never promised them to the church. What about the Gentiles? Does God not love the Gentiles equally? Don't get me wrong, we're in chapter 9. Let's, let's continue to read verses 24. Even so, whom he also called, not from amongst the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people. And her who was not beloved, beloved. God not only chooses the Jewish people for election, for national election, he calls some of them to salvation. And he's asking the Gentiles to participate, even amongst the Gentiles he has a nation called. Now Paul is citing Hosea here, uh, Hosea chapter 2, verses 23, and Hosea chapter 1, verse 10. And Paul is essentially saying, just as God is going to restore the northern kingdom, the apostate Jews that were there, so too he's going to bring in Gentiles in that same way. Paul uses these two verses... indicate that God will reconcile not just the Northern Kingdom, but reconcile Gentiles. What he doesn't say, often interpreted this way, that the Church fulfills the promise made to Israel, nor does he indicate that the Church is the new Israel. That is also based on Galatians 6.16. We see that Paul does talk about the Israel of God there. But those Jewish believers that walk by this rule, Paul says, he's talking about Jewish believer. Out of every reference that you will find in whether it's the old or the new covenant, whenever you find the phrase Israel, Jewish people, Hebrews, Israelites, it means the Jewish people. So here too, the Israel of God in Galatians six sixteen are Jewish believers those that have accepted Messiah, Yeshua. In this letter, Paul sets out the rule. And he says these Jewish believers walk according to this rule. This rule particularly is related to what he's just said, but throughout the entire book of Galatians he argues this. It doesn't matter in Messiah if you're Jewish, circumcised, or Gentile, uncircumcised. What matters is that you are a new creation in Messiah. Paul has made the case from the opening words all the way to the end. It is all about being in Messiah. There are differences, just as there are differences between male and female. But the issue isn't being male or female, the issue isn't being Jew or Gentile, the issue is being in Messiah. And Paul does indicate that there are differences. There is the Israel of God and there would be the Gentiles of God. But we are both one in Messiah. So what about the church? Uh, Replacement theology, which is especially hurtful, is claiming that these things now belong to them. Though they were derived from the Jewish people. What did the Church get from the Jewish people? Well, the Scriptures. All of this, the, the text that we have, comes from the Jewish people. It is the main thing that we should declare. As I pointed out, Deuteronomy 4, 7-8. to 8, What great nation is there that has a God so close to them, that calls upon them, Uh, giving them statutes and laws. Uh, We looked at the book of Psalms, and so in Psalm 147, verses 19 to 20, he showed his word to Jacob, his statutes and his ordinances unto Israel. He's not dealt so with any other nation. Not only that, the church isn't a nation. The church are the believers in Messiah Yeshua from all the nations. And again, it doesn't fit the language. What does fit is that we should stand together and praise the name of the Lord as it says in one psalm. Psalm 147 verses 20, the the concluding one. He may not have dealt with the body of Messiah in such a way because he's given it to Israel, to Jacob. All of the Sanach, the Older Testament, was written by Jews. And I would argue that even the Newer Testament was written by Jews. Though some like to argue about Luke. So the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts would then be written by a Gentile. But in light of Romans chapter 3, I don't think that's true. What advantage then is there to the Jew? Or what prophet circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, to them was entrusted the oracles of God. In other words, the divine revelation was given to the Jews. Based on that, I would argue that Luke is a Jew and not a Gentile. So what we received from them, the Jewish people, is the Word. But the other thing that we received from them is the Messiah himself. Think about Galatians chapter 4 verses 1 to 7. We won't read the entire passage, but I pray you will. Uh, But in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, under the Torah, under the law, that He might redeem them that are under the Torah, and that we collectively may receive the adoption of sons. Paul is bringing here one of the spiritual blessings that the body of Messiah will receive. But the first thing he points out is that Messiah himself is a Jew, born under the Torah, born under the law, that he might redeem Jewish people who are under the law. But that we collectively, once we are redeemed, receive the adoption of sons. And with that comes what? God's spirit that is put in our hearts so that we together may cry out Abba Father so no longer a a slave but a son and if a son then an heir to God Yeshua was clearly born under the law he is a Jew Uh, that's pointed out in the book of Matthew 2 in Matthew chapter 1 the genealogy he's the son of Abraham Jewish the son of David not only Jewish, he's the Jewish king. It is pointed out in the book of Revelation where he's called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He continues to be a Jew for all eternity. He is the God-man. He cannot change who he is any more than we can change who we are. One of the things that Paul now starts to address is a spiritual blessing that we as the body of Messiah, Jews and Gentiles together, receive in that we have received Sonship in the Messiah and we are heirs through God. And this is part of the spiritual blessings that the Apostle addresses in the book of Ephesians. In chapters 2 and 3, He argues this very strongly. Let me just turn there for a second. Uh, Again, time eludes me to deal with all of this. But he starts off with, you who were dead in your trespasses in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world. In other words, you Gentiles, you were lost. But God being rich in mercy, verse 4, because of His great love with which He has loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Messiah. By grace you have been saved. Here we start to see that He is bringing in the spiritual blessings that the church receives. Now think about it very carefully as we... Hear these words in chapter 2, verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Messiah Yeshua himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building is being fitted together and is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. Hmm. Fellow citizen you and I are together. Uh, that means that we don't have overtakers and we don't have under you'll forgive me. In other words the Gentiles didn't take over and the Jewish people didn't become under that's not the case. But we together partake in the spiritual blessings that he has set out in Messiah Yeshua. Because out of both of them he's made the one new man. And so you've become, as Gentiles, fellow citizens. Listen to chapter 3 verse 6. He now makes it very specific, and he says that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Messiah Yeshua through the gospel. I know many versions don't have that fellow, 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 but they only have it once. But I like this. You've become an heir with me, a member of the body with me partake of the promise in Messiah Yeshua with me. Not overtaking, but with. That's the key. Together we are part of this new body that was formed. One of the other things that we receive is not just the spiritual blessings, but we receive salvation from the Jewish people. Messiah himself said that very clearly in John 4, verse 22. When he's talking to the woman at Samaria at the well, and she's a Samaritan woman, and he says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. Now, it is in the plural, ye worship that which ye do not know. It's plural, you all. Worship what you all do not know. We worship what we know. And so as a Jew, that's what he's proclaiming. And what is it? It is for salvation is of the Jews. One of the promises to the Jewish people was that national salvation. But the plan of salvation meant that each individual must respond to that plan and to the promise of salvation. But as a plan and as a promise, it is given to them, the Jewish people. It therefore requires Jewish intervention. That might be an odd phrasing, forgive me. Messiah Yeshua in the book of Hebrews is that perfect sacrifice, and he is our high priest. So he makes that intervention for the body of Messiah. And all the proclaimers of that message of salvation in the Tanakh and in the New Covenant are Jewish believers. The other thing that we received from the Jews is the model, the concept of the body of Messiah, the local congregation, the church, the local church. This is based on the synagogue. There can be no doubt about it. And to become a part of this body of Messiah what you had to do was today uh, we would call it baptism back then the term that was used for the pool itself is a mikvah and you had to do a ritual immersion. There are hundreds of those ritual pools discovered in Israel all around, particularly in Jerusalem near the Temple Mount and so both the concept of the body, the local body and how to enter in with purity and the concept of the elder was found in the synagogue already. One of the other things is Sudat HaMashiach, that may be a term that is unfamiliar to you, uh, it's the Hebrew phraseology that means the meal of Messiah. More commonly uh, it is referred to as the breaking of bread, communion, the Lord's Supper, whatever your local congregation calls it, it doesn't really matter. Sudat HaMashiach, the table of, or the, the meal of the Messiah, really, is the essence of the Passover meal, the Seder. Those two key elements, the unleavened bread, the wine, are still the key elements for the Passover, and are the two key elements for the meal of Messiah. So that is so significant that we still have that. It is something that we need to be careful with that we don't miss. The Jewish people remain God's covenant people and they have given the church, the body of Messiah, great blessings and many blessings. But not once does the Bible say the church has replaced Israel. The chosenness of the Jewish people has not been transferred despite the loud proclamations of some church members. The covenant blessings and the promises are still theirs and the spiritual blessings can be shared in. I hope, like me, that you can see that from Scripture, that God remains faithful though every man a liar. Who proclaims that false theology. God's covenantal promises need to be fulfilled to the people He made it to. Just imagine having two children, a son and a daughter. You promise the daughter or the son a, a bicycle, and the birthday comes around, you buy the bicycle, you come home, and your wife, husband stands near the door and says, Your son has done terrible things. You walk in with the bike and he is so excited, my bicycle, it's my birthday, thank you. And then you say, well, because you were naughty, I'm going to give it to your sister and I have fulfilled my promise to you. Nobody in their right mind would say that is true. Nobody. And yet that is exactly what replacement theology is. God has promised to Israel, so needs to deliver to Israel. What he promises to the church are the spiritual blessings, Ephesians 2 and 3. For us to try to steal them is theft. I'll move on because otherwise I get on my hobby horse and that's not what the purpose of this sermon was about. Romans 11. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. Absolutely not. God forbid. God has not rejected his people. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. What is Paul saying here? God has not rejected his people. It is so simple. He states it twice. What he then continues to say is, yes, the nation has always been rebellious. That's the reality. They were rebellious from day one to today. But it doesn't mean that God remains faithless. He remains faithful. This is the point that Paul is bringing out in Romans 11. Uh, With Elijah, he points out, he pleaded with God against Israel. So too for us. We stand with the apostle and we say, No, God has not rejected his people. The covenants and the oaths he made still are with them. Romans eleven twenty five to 27 For I do not want you to be ignorant brothers, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion, and he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. Isaiah fifty nine twenty. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Jeremiah 31:33 and 34. The first thing he makes clear is that he doesn't want them to be uninformed. The whole purpose of this segment has been that they may understand. This is the Gentiles. That they may understand and not be ignorant, not wise in their own estimation, not be arrogant that a partial hardening has happened. There's always been a partial hardening in Israel. Israel rejected the the Lord Himself and they created wells of salvation that could not hold water. They've rejected the Lord from Moses to today. But just because there is a partial hardening, and it only will always be a partial hardening until the fullness of Gentiles come in. That partial hardening means that salvation has come to some, but not to all. The fullness of the Gentiles is the full number most likely. It means number, the fullness of the Gentiles as in numbers. I don't know what that number is. I do know that in the meantime, therefore, we should share the gospel, not just with Jews, but also with Gentiles. Because when that number comes in, the Deliverer will come back. And he'll come to Zion, to Jerusalem, and remove ungodliness away from Jacob. And remove their sins in light of the new covenant Friends, we have received tremendous blessings from the nation of Israel. And their chosen status was never challenged by any of the apostles. We have received as the body of Messiah tremendous blessings. And we share in their spiritual blessings. So what is it that we then need to do? What is it that We must do it in response to that, in light of this. Paul, in the second to last chapter, Romans 15, verse 27, says this. Yes, they were pleased to do so. He's talking about the Gentile congregations that were now indebted to them, to the Jewish people. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are to... Minister to them in their material things. Paul is taking up a special collection and he's saying, hey, you've received from them, now respond in turn. In, if I would put this in a modern day context, Paul is asking the Gentiles to support ministry amongst the Jewish people. And I pray that you'll do that today. First that you pray for the peace of Jerusalem. But also support Jewish ministry. Particularly those ministries that support Jewish people in receiving the blessings that you received from them. Yes, I'm talking about salvation. And I pray that you will support Jewish missions that share God's message the good news of Yeshua the Messiah back with them, both here in Australia, but also in the land. And I pray that you'll obey the request of the Apostle Paul. And that perhaps you will even join us in our mission here in sharing the scriptures back, which we received from them. In sharing Messiah which belongs to them, in sharing the message of salvation, which we received from them, so that together we can celebrate that Sudat HaMashiach, the the communion or the, the Lord's Supper, together, and that we can rejoice together in the Lord and in His Anointed One, Yeshua the Messiah. Amen? Join us. I'm going to ask the worship team to close up and I pray we will see you next week in St. Ives and that we may worship the Lord there together. We have a special feature next week where uh, some harpists are coming and we will play some beautiful, some wonderful music as we worship the Lord together. So I pray that you'll join us physically but that you will also And join us online if you're unable to visit us. Until then, Shabbat Shalom.